You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Steve Barron directed the video Billie Jean that launched Michael Jackson on MTV. He catapulted the career of Aha! with Take On Me. He was the first to shoot a video with Madonna for Burning Up. He directed the incredible Human League's opus, Don't You Want Me? And also, among many, many others, he directed the video to Money For Nothing from Dire Straits. It's hard to find someone who was as important in the development of video during the 80s. His book, Egg and Chips and Billie Jean, is all about that era, from someone who was at the centre of the action. And I've posted a link if you want to buy it from Steve. And although he's moved on since the 80s to film and TV series directing, the stories he tells are as rich and diverse and surprising as any you will hear and will transport you back to the great era of video. Welcome. First of all, I want to thank you for your enormous um, contribution to pop culture, particularly as someone who worked for MTV. It's it's been absolutely enormous, and I glad you know. I really think for all of us, you've made um, uh, such a wonderful contribution. So thank you for that. I want to start off with your childhood because you're the son of um, Zelda Baron, your mother, who was a uh, director. Um, script continuity person as well and script advisor and your father um, Tom no sorry Ray was an actor Ron so Ron Ron, was it ah see I've got it up Ron and Tom and Ray yeah okay Ron was an actor and I just wondered what was the conversation around (laughs) the table when you were very young what was it about film and acting or was it just normal stuff when I was very young I I wanted it to be about football. Uh, so that was the kind of conversation I wanted to have for many years. Uh, and uh, the, yeah, my, my mother was often, my mum and dad were often away actually um, making films. They would go, you know, 14 weeks in Mexico or in Canada or whatever. When we were, me and my sister, my older sister, Siobhan, were, when we were quite young. And uh, so we had sort of a, you know, uh, I, uh, the, the parents were, were missing because they had to, and there was no other way of doing it uh, for, for some of it. But, uh, you know, obviously uh, a, a fair amount of it, we, uh, especially with my mother, my relationship with my mother was really close um, because my mum and dad split up when we were about 12 and, and, uh, uh, and I lived with my mum and uh, she was big inspiration she was in the film business I didn't know what to do I didn't make it as a footballer so I didn't know what to do and I got interested in cameras that's where it all came from when you were at school you you were I don't know if this is the right word but it does seem from what your uh, uh, headmaster said that you will never get anywhere that you're a bit of a failure at school and school system obviously failed you what do you think was wrong with the school system back then because we're a similar age and I think that when when I went to school it was really focused not on creativity it was focused on you know really sort of just learning things which which wasn't a real creative aspect and creativity for me came much later but for you I just wondered if if that was in a way something that you could rebel against at that time because it didn't fit you in any way yeah, I I didn't. Uh, I wasn't. I went to a, a school I really didn't like. Um, 
actually to a grammar school, which was the strictest schools at the time. And uh, they, the rules and, uh, and the way of teaching were all about discipline and about, uh, you know, things that weren't in anywhere inspiring, logarithms and things you were going to learn that, that, that you had to learn through repetition and until it was stuck in your head and what point, you know, I didn't see the point to anything. And uh, it was really not encouraged to do much else. But I, I got thrown out of that school maybe about 13, 14, luckily, and I've spent the last year or so at another school where they were a bit more open, a bit more, um, well, you know, what What do you want to do? And they gave me a, a, a bit of Super 8 film, and I actually went and made a, made a little film. It was the only thing I was inspired to, uh, to pass the exam or in, in art. That was under the art um, banner. And uh, so it was, uh, it, yeah, it was a real uh, not, not enjoyable relationship with, with, with school and learning. I had an aversion to being told what to do as well, I think, which didn't help. What was this Super 8 film? What did you make? Uh, it was called Glass, and I just hung some bottles uh, in, the, in the window. We were living in a flat on the third floor and uh, hung, hung some different colored bottles um, and then put it to uh, a kind of Japanese soundtrack. And it had uh, some great flares in it. I remember that, just like, because we were shooting into direct sunlight, but through the bottles. How did you and, get uh, from that to get your first job, which was, uh, what's it called, a clapper something or other? Clapper loader. A, a clapper loader, yeah, which is a camera assistant, basically, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's like the bottom of the rung of the camera assistant. So you're loading the film in the camera and you're in the magazines. You go into the camera and uh, you're putting the clapper board on. Um, I, got, I got there via uh, a job, my first job, which was in Cricklewood. I was in living in Kilburn and down the road in Cricklewood was a big camera hire firm that uh, rented all the cameras to all the big movies. And they were looking for a T-boy for like a year. They couldn't, because they didn't want to pay much. They wanted to pay 12 quid a week. They were looking for a T-boy. And I, I went for the job and got, and, you know, got it. And, uh, and that gave me uh, kind of introductions to a lot of, to meeting a lot of film crew. Uh, and, uh, you know, different crews would come in through. And I would also be my job to clean off the clapperboards. And so I'd be tearing off the tape, which had the dates of, uh, you know, like a film like Cabaret or, um, uh, some of those early doc, um, Sherlock Holmes films and everything. And uh, they, they, these boxes would come in from a set of those films. And I'd been around a few sets because my mum and dad were in the business. But from a work point of view, I'd never really thought about it this way. And it got quite interesting as, as my job was really make the tea and clean, it, clean a few lenses and that sort of thing. I learned about the lenses. I was curious about them. I learned about the cameras. I learned about loading the film. So after about a year and a half, two years at this firm, I was like, then 17, I, uh, it, the f- a few big crews came in and they were like, well, what are you doing here? Do you want to do something else? And uh, and they were basically inviting me onto their crews for A Bridge Too Far and Superman. It was Peter McDonald and Jeff Unsworth. And they were the ace crew. And they weren't, they had just, their clapper load had been upgraded to focus bullets. So they had a vacancy. And they took me on to these enormous productions at a very young age. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of got thrown in the deep end and, and thankfully, and uh, just, uh, just really learnt, learnt over those years um, about the craft. 
it sounds like from your book that Peter McDonald was a bit of a mentor to you. What what did you learn from him that specifically really has helped you in your professional career? Um, from Peter, it was really self-discipline more than anything, because <laughs> I suppose I, I was lacking a bit of a father figure at the time as well. My dad, mum and dad had split up and we weren't, uh, you know, I didn't see much of him. And, and I was also a bit rebellious and... Uh, so I was a bit of a bit of a skinhead and, a, you know, like kind of looking for, you know, looking for trouble. And, and then I was working and earning money to live. And, um, and Peter, Peter at that age, about 18, took me on to uh, uh, took me on to the, these films. And, and you know, I'd, I'd carry on with my slightly wayward behavior going out on the town, uh, as all the camera crew would, you know, or the ones that were more susceptible to that would do. And you're away for eight months in another country and you go out and, you know, the hooligan part of me kind of came out a number of times, but whenever it did, he gave me this kind of discipline. He'd get me on the crane in a very complicated shot, give me 17 camera moves to, to sizes on the zoom to hit at certain points in the dialogue between Robert Redford and, uh, you know, James Kahn, and then he'd put me on a shot on Superman. He'd put me on a shot when they burst into the White House and say, right, you, you're you on that lens. You tell me whether you like it or not, and we're going to have three explosions. And, and, you know, it's completely taught you responsibility, I suppose. And uh, he was an amazing operator as well. He had an um, incredible um, knack of, uh, of, of with, the, with the wheels, which were the left and right and the up and down on the other hand. And uh, he was just so skillful. Some of his shots he'd invent, most of it, them were his, Richard Attenborough and Bridget Farr let him really, you know, come up with what the angles were going to be and how the shot was going to develop. And uh, he would uh, he would develop it with a whole, either a crane or a dance floor of moves. And he would rely on the grip and the focus puller and the clapper loader to, to bring all those moves together and they they were you know and I, I've you know I've fucked up a number of times obviously um in various ways but it I learned I never have learned so much in the space of a few years um from such a great professional as Peter. Did you also learn about the relationship between the crew members so you know there you have the the director of photography or the, the camera person and then you have the director communicating with each other so did you actually sort of glean information about how the whole team operates do you think as well yeah, I did I did with the crew I I didn't pay much attention I didn't see uh, what I was interested in was with, with the crew and the way and the grips and the and up to the the uh, camera operator and because that's as far as I could see I could see myself becoming a focus puller and maybe 10, 15 years, and then an operator, another 10 years, and then and then I might be a DP, but I wasn't sure about that because I didn't know exactly what their their skill set was, even though I saw how they operated with the with the gaffer and the lighting and everything. I didn't know really a lot about their skill set. I wasn't, I was more into the lenses and the uh, and the workings and uh and those and and all the other crew, obviously. And but um, I didn't look at that and I didn't look really at what the director, how the director's process uh, formed itself and differently and obviously different characters. Richard Attenborough was somebody who 
would very much talk to the actors and, and ignore the camera. And I worked with Ridley Scott on his first film, and he was somebody who would completely be stuck to the camera and be painting the images beautifully, but but leaving the actors kind of a bit, uh, uh, you know, cut and dry, <laughs> high and dry, I should say, um, to figure out their characters themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's it was it was. Uh, Something I wished I'd have paid more attention to. I worked with three amazing directors, Dick Donner, Richard Attenborough, um, Ridley Scott, in the space of two years on big productions. And if I'd have known I would have become a director, which I never, at this point, I had no ambitions for it or no real thinking that I could, you know, I would make that role or know, know what that role really was. And so, because I didn't go to film school, I, di I, didn't, I didn't know anything about the storytelling aspect of it. You also work with David Putnam on a, on a documentary in Canterbury Cathedral, and uh, you know you talked about the fact that, that you know you were you were a, I wouldn't say a troublemaker, but you got into a bit of trouble, and at that point you managed to inadvertently call Prince Charles an idiot, <laughs> which is a great story in your book. So what exactly <laughs> happened? Um, I actually, uh, yeah, I. I got called. I'd, I'd been out, I think I was, I must have been 17 at the time, and I was still kind of hanging out with my mates and going going out clubbing in London down the Wag Club or whatever and uh, having a bit of a time. And then they called up and said, oh, we need a couple loader for a two-week job. You've got to be in Canterbury Cathedral and you've got to wear a tie, which I associate straight away with my school as I hadn't touched a tie since I got out of school at 15. And um, I didn't even remember how to tie a tie. And they said, you've got to wear a tie, you've got to wear a jacket, and you have to speak like this to the Prince Charles. You have to say, you can't say you're Charles, and you can't say you're Prince Charles. You've got to say, I can't even remember what it was. It's something like your Royal Highness. Um, can we, you know, and, and don't say it if you don't have to. And so um, I, was, uh, I was on the set feeling a bit kind of anarchic or like something that day. And uh, with with Charles and we were doing a number of takes around this documentary around the, the cathedral and just really about what uh, what the stained glass windows all meant. And, and we were in, in front of the Thomas Beckett stained glass window, I remember. And we were doing a tracking slow move in shot towards Charles where he would um, he would read from the autocue. The words were on the camera in front of him for about three minutes and then. Uh, finished and we did, we had done about five takes and he'd not got really past the first minute of the take and uh, um, and I don't know you know I, I I just kind of went up you know in front of him with the clapper board for the next take and I, instead it was twenty six take six but for some reason out of my mouth came twenty six take twit and I clapped it and I had that horrible moment was like kind of I. Did I say, I can't have said that. I was, you know, I didn't, yeah, I might have been thinking it, but I, I kind of, kind of, I kind of said it out loud. So I crouched down by, by the camera and there was this horrible silence. And I thought, oh my God, I did. No one's saying a word. And then the director said, action. And uh, we did the track in. And this time he made it through the whole three minutes and he got, got to the end of it. And the director said, thank you, we got that. And after each setup, the Prince Charles was whisked off to the crypt because he was under security at the time. And uh, he was whisked, whisked off and the crew just burst into laughter. And, and Sam and replayed uh, me saying 26A twit, uh, echoing all around 
Canterbury Cathedral. They were laughing their heads off. I was extremely embarrassed because I thought, uh, you know, I didn't mean that. It was if it was my joke, <laughs> it would have been okay, but um, I couldn't claim it really. And uh, so we did that. And then when he came back out, he was definitely. I mean, I saw him out the corner of my eye. And he was looking at me like, you know, beheading. I don't know what he was thinking, but something, uh, some sort of punishment or some, whether he should even step in and do something. And uh, anyway, it was all left. Okay. And David Putnam came by the set the following day and said, Baron, over here, you know, he summed me over. He said, look, um, all very well. Uh, very funny. Everyone thought that was very funny. I've just watched the rushes though. And it's completely unusable because the cameraman and their focus puller have both got their hands on the camera, on the track in, and they're just holding their laughter in that the whole camera's trembling and shaking. And it's not usable. So I hope you're happy. And I was like, I, you know, it's like, uh, anyway, so I got in trouble. I frequently got in trouble. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. How did you make the move from those working on those uh, early films as a sort of camera assistant to actually starting your own production company and, and making videos? Uh, I think it was it was really through the bit of nightlife, you know, like like going to going to Water Street and uh, and hanging out uh, with friends that were some of which which were in bands were in you know we didn't really have a crossover between film and music and except socially and uh so i you know i met a few people and uh i was by this point 18 19 i was on superman i was uh, on it for nine ten months in pinewood and in uh shepparton and you know i was itching i suppose to 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 be a bit more entrepreneurial with what i was doing and um, uh, I met this guy and he said, uh, he said, I'm a, I'm a road manager of a band. You, you work in film. And I, I said, yeah, I'm a clapper loader in Superman. And he didn't, nobody knew what a clapper loader was. Nobody knew really what a director was at that point. There was no, you know, there was no real crossover at all between the two industries. And uh, he, he said, well, how, could you get a camera and film my band? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, he said, "Well, I'll get some money from the record company. Come and film the band." And it was a it was a band called Bartley James Harvest, and uh, they he actually wanted a documentary following them and their music around Germany. So I asked Peter McDonald, we were just finishing on Super, I said, "Do you want to come with me?" They've given me a bit of money to do. They give me like six grand. I didn't even know how to add up. I didn't even know what the editing would cost. I'd never done that, and all I knew was the camera which I could get almost for nothing and uh, a little crew. And I got, I got my dad on sound and the five of us went off uh, to follow, um, to follow this band around and uh, for, as a promotional film. And actually I'd done very well for the few years before uh, earning a bit of money. And uh, I'd put it onto a house, which I then lost on this production because I had no idea what, what it would all cost. And, uh, but it did lead and open the doors to right. Well, let's um, let's form a company and see whether we can get some other groups to uh, get involved. I mean, it's a very sort of well for me. It sounds like a very um, story of its era um, because the early eighties was so experimental, and the, you know, particularly in the in music. It had, uh, because of technology and everything, people were making music in their bedrooms, and then comes this upsurge of bands. 
um, in New Wave and and all that area. And it felt it feels like when I read your story, it's very much of the era that it's a story that may not, or probably couldn't happen today, um, in a way because you sort of these opportunities came to you. I mean, obviously you're you're making the moves, but in a sense they came to you, but they're not opportunities that maybe would be given today because people seem to look for like what have they really done in the past? What what qualities can they bring to something? Whereas you got these offers and then you made something of them. Do you think yeah. that's sort of a, a, a true perspective of what, what it was back then? I, th- I think it is, yeah. There was a much smaller quantity of people who could force their way into this world because uh they because either like julian temple they went to film school or or like me they kind of grew up on in the camera on the crew on the set um whereas people just coming there with a you know from an art background or whatever it'd be really hard for them to to get in to that first step, where actually I think it's a lot easier now in a lot of ways, even though the market's completely flooded and there's tons of people who are in a similar position where they can access enough uh, data to make a film of, of three minutes, five minutes, I mean, almost anyone can, well, any, anyone can do it because everyone who's got a mobile phone could do it. So, and uh, but what it needs to be now, what it needed to be then was good. What it needs to be now is amazing. Otherwise, it's it's a waste of time. You don't. You're not going to get something else from it. You're not going to get a bigger budget or whatever unless it's absolutely amazing. It has to really stand out. It has to break through the noise that now is is there. Uh, so it's harder, I think, in that way. It's so harder, even though it's easier to actually access the material. It's harder to 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 break through and make a name for yourself. I mean, you were based in London. And you still are, I think. At that, that, but at that point, you were in London, and MTV had started in 1980, um, or was it 1980 in America? 1981, I think, in America. Yeah. And um, you wouldn't have really necessarily known at the start what the impact of a pop video could be. And I just wondered whether the even that the artists knew the impact of a pop video, because in a way that they present their image in this three minutes and it's because it's on a rotation and you see it hundreds of times, you you take that image for the person eventually. So Madonna, you know, has this sexualized image and that was in the early days, very much so. Um, and, you know, uh, Michael Jackson, as you mentioned, when you, when you did Billie Jean in this sort of magical image of him was very important to, to, to his development. Do you think you were aware back then of the impact of the pop video and the pop stars were aware? Or was it just something that sort of came later? I think it, it definitely came after starting in the promotional film world of, of uh, large record companies, CBS and Warners and everything, because their attitude was, we'll take a promotional film, we'll use it in Holland and Germany and try and use it in a few other places. But it's those guys that, that we want to, the international end of, of selling these records. These guys want you to do some television and we're going to have to make a film of that. And uh, so they, they treat it very much like it's, uh, we've got to do it. It doesn't really have a massive impact, but it's in, an important piece in us in the jigsaw, a smaller piece in the jigsaw. Then 
along came MTV and uh, that made it completely different because suddenly people were watching a 24-hour channel that was only music videos and 24 hours and a biggish audience, growing audience. Uh, and uh, it, so then it was like, wait a minute, there, there's a whole other world for these, uh, for these videos and there's a whole lot of interest in them as videos as well as the artists and the, and the music. And uh, that all kind of you know, grew through through MTV appearing really and uh, changed, changed attitudes from the record companies. Well, some record companies, some record companies stayed with the attitude that, oh God, we've got to do it because now we're going to put it in, we've got to get it into heavy rotation on MTV. But they treated it like it's just another radio station with a bit of flash to it. They still didn't really believe in uh, that a video could make that much difference. But I think as, you know, certain bands just exploded, you know, like Duran Duran and things because of their image, because of their look. And uh, it became obvious soon that there was a big divide between those who could create an image that was um, in, you know, uh, could could attract uh, an audience and those that couldn't. I mean, MTV in the early days in America didn't play videos of black artists. Um, and its excuse was that it was playing to the Midwest and it was playing more sort of rock-based um, music. And I think later on they acknowledged that, but they went um, and they they changed a bit. But you you had to do, or you were offered a video with Eddie Grant. So at that era of doing a video with Eddie Grant, you wouldn't have known if there was really an opportunity of that getting played. So the, that would have been taking on a job that may have had no success. So how did you go about that? And, and how did that change happen that MTV started to play videos from black artists? Um, I don't, I mean, I, I'm not uh, necessarily an accurate historian on that, but I think, um, I feel that Billie Jean was the, the big bridge into, into mainstream MTV. Um, because Billie Jean at first, it happened very quickly, within the first few months of uh, the life of MTV, and Billie Jean uh, was, a, was a video, a pop video in, in CBS's record's mind that will be very well received and uh, was a, uh, you know, felt, felt like, of course it's going to be played. And, and when MTV said no to that as well as what it had said no to before, which was, you know, with the excuse, as you say, of, of channeling, um, you know, more um, mainstream and, you know, something the Midwest would like to see. Um, but when when they finally broke that down, because that stayed as a stalemate for a few weeks only, and then they said, OK, we'll play it. And then within you know, no time at all, Michael Jackson, within a few months, really, and, and the rest of the releases on Thriller, um, became MTV. That was Steve Barron. And in part two, he talks more about the creative genius of Michael Jackson, working with Madonna, with Aha, and also his work today. I'll see you then. 